In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Breathe in us, O Holy Spirit, that all our thoughts may be holy. Act in us, O Holy Spirit, that all our work, too, may be holy. Draw our hearts, O Holy Spirit, that we love but what is holy. Strengthen us, O Holy Spirit, to defend all that is holy. Guard us, then, O Holy Spirit, that we always may be holy. Our Lady, Seed of Wisdom, St. John the Beloved, St. Joseph, St. Peter and Paul. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Similar to yesterday, the goal will be to cover two different sections. One will be uh, to uh, examine a, one particular word and many of its ramifications, and then to look at a theological reflection on part of the mystery that's described in this part of the book of Genesis. So the name that we will be studying is Eve. The name Eve is coming to us from Latin directly, Eva. And it's a translation of the Hebrew word chava, which comes from to breathe and to live, to give life. It's hard to, it's not as though Eve means living, um, but that the name itself comes from her being the mother of all the living. So, um, uh, when, how and when that happens is also very interesting. So there's three references here on, on the front page of this handout. One is from Wikipedia, uh, just the parts of Wikipedia that are trustworthy, namely the first sentence. Um, and then a little bit from uh, a Jewish rabbi's website that I found helpful. There are background references that um, refer to um, commentaries from a thousand years ago or Midrash, uh, let alone Talmud, which obviously go much further back. The original biblical name of Eve is Chava. As with most of the names in the Torah, the Torah explains the significance of this name, which was given to her by Adam. The man called his wife's name Chava because she had become the mother of all the living. It's Genesis 3.20. The root of this name is connected with a word chaya, which means living, and the word chai, which means life. Chava is the, the causative form. That is, she calls all the people in the future to live. It's curious. We'll come back to that notion and re-examine that. The Midrash explains that Adam could speak all the languages that would ever come into existence. Nevertheless, one day he saw that the animals were crying and he couldn't figure out what they were saying. Chava said to him, they are crying because they are hungry. Adam immediately recognized that she was right and gave her the name Chaya because she was a nurturer. Obviously this is Midrash, so this is significant, um, but not as though it's from the Torah. 
Similarly, it is stated in the Talmud, she was called Chava because she nursed the whole world. Alternatively, here's a curious twist. Chiva is a snake. And I like how the rabbi refers back to the temptation in the garden. The snake affair was alluded to in her name. The name Chava is usually translated in English as Eve because the first letter Het and Het are sometimes exchanged. Thus the two E's and Eve are instead of the Het and Het. So notice now, um, there is a beautiful irony in Eve being given this name um, as mother of all the living. Um, we should probably note first when she's given this name. That's also a curiosity. Adam is identified by name, quote unquote, and I'll explain why I use carrots when I say Adam's name. Um, from the first moment in which he is identified as a person in Genesis 2. Right? In Genesis 1, we're not given any names. We're just, we're just given a description of the, of the creation of man as male and female. Right? So the name Adam, the name Eve, even the word woman doesn't appear in Genesis 1. But man, male and female, those are the words that we hear in Genesis 1, the first account of creation. The second account of creation, Adam is introduced by name from the very beginning of the second account of creation. Eve isn't introduced or described by name or identified by name until after the fall, and in fact until after the punishment has been meted out. So the serpent has been cursed, uh, Eve has been given her punishment, Adam has been given his punishment, and then the narrative describes for us um, and um, he gave her the name Eve because she was mother of all the living. Um, so when she's identified by name is curious. Um, and I'll comment on that as we discuss the name of Adam, again with quotation marks around name. But if anything, at this point, Eve would be associated not with life and with being the mother of the living, but she would be associated with death, with sin, with the fall. Obviously, Adam, in all of his pride, refuses to accept his, his share of responsibility. And he's, notice even when is, when is the command given that, that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is to be avoided? In Genesis 2, the second kind of creation, before Eve was even created, before the animals were even created. This is a command that was given directly to Adam with the narrative of the second account of creation. Adam totally fails to acknowledge any responsibility to, to be accountable for this command having been given to him. He throws Eve under the bus, figuratively. There were no buses back then, only serpents that could speak English in perfect uh, American idiom. And, um, and yet, as much as he blamed her, according to the narrative, he gives her the name Eve, mother of all the living. There's no reason to assume, there's no indication in the text, this is meant to be sarcastic, that this is meant to be some kind of twist in her to 
ridicule her, but rather, no, she's given the name Eve. Having to do with life, breath, to live, all the living. And she's being described, her first, in a sense, her first title is mother of all the living. When in fact, um, what we see here on two different levels are beautiful irony, right? This is the mercy and the beauty and the, and the hope of the mercy of God, right? The death, um, death has been introduced to creation, the death of man. Sin has been entered into uh, by man. Obviously, angels entered into sin prior to the original sin of Adam and Eve. But that is not the end of the story. And in fact, God has something um, in store for them that actually is going to be greater than even what they knew before. This has already been discussed in Genesis 3.15, right? With the Proto-Evangelion, with uh, the, the description of the future triumph of the seed of the woman, which is not Seth, certainly not Cain and Abel, but with Jesus, the, the son of Mary. So Eve is given a name that bespeaks not only gen, gen, generally of the, of the magnificence of God, his, his, his mercy, but also specifically points directly to the Blessed Virgin Mary. She's the one who actually is the mother of all the living. She's the one through whom the serpent, the evil one, will be conquered through her seed, through her son. Interestingly enough, the name Eve appears in the Bible as of after this moment only four more times. The name Eve appears in the whole Bible only five times. But given what I've just said, it's not as though she disappears. Right? The role of the mother of all the living is absolutely central to all of salvation history. So, the Christ being the new Adam, Mary being the new Eve, as described in, in, in the New Testament, is of enormous significance. And it, and it explains, you know, that another wrinkle of how, how beautifully ironic that she would be given this name. So, second point, Adam. And I, whenever I've said Adam as a name, I've used quotation marks as though it's not a real name. Well, the name Adam, curiously enough, means earth. Mud, right? Dirt. God formed man, Adam, out of the dust of the ground. You see the, on the bottom there, you see um, the Hebrew words and the English words and the transliterations above. The noun man, ha'adam, is from the same word that is translated as ground, ha'adama. You see that? Same root, very similar word. And so when you see the name Adam beyond that, right, don't you see the name Adam already in the Hebrew word, ha'adam? Right, so... Adam, when you, when you, obviously, we don't have capital letters and small letters in biblical Hebrew or in Hebrew in general. We don't even have, when we're reading Latin texts, typically, we're only reading capital letters. We rarely, in medieval or ancient texts, really have lowercase letters. So 
where you see punctuation, know that uh, an editor has been involved. When you see a word being capitalized, you certainly know an editor has been involved to decide that that's a proper noun or you know a proper name. And so the difference between Adam meaning man and Adam being a name is basically editorial or contextual, right? So we can we can grant that Adam's been named earlier on in the narrative of Genesis 2, but it's not a real name. It's just, that's just what he's called. You know, he's called, he's called man. It's, it's the same word, and it comes from dirt. It comes from mud. It comes from earth. It's the same, it's basically the same word. So it's a curiosity, especially when, again, we're going to apply a, a Christian wrinkle to, to, to these uh, ironies Christ comes as the new Adam could you think of a more humble title than that right earth mud dirt and, and Christ, Christ actually is God and yet doesn't cling to that, he never leaves heaven, but he comes into the earth into this most most humble of conditions. And his humility even leads to his being willing to die on the cross. Whereas Adam doesn't even have the humility to admit his sin. You've seen the other parallels too, but they're, but they're always worth repeating. The tree isn't causative of anything in the fall, in Genesis, but it's an instrument of the fall, whereas here the tree is the instrument of victory. The other irony that you see is Adam, even his name, his name doesn't even mean anything in the future, right? Adam, his name, refers to the inanimate material from which he came. The name Eve refers to the, the living creatures that didn't really come from her, even though she's called their mother. Mary's mother of God. She's not the mother of the Trinity. She's not the mother of divinity, but she is the mother of him, and he is God. She's not the cause of his origin. She really is his mother. And it is worth noting, especially when occasionally uh, the news reports of the finding of the grave of Jesus, which is the same name as Yeshua, uh, you know, Joshua in the Old Testament, uh, just about the most common name. 2,000 years, one of the most common names 2,000 years ago. So um, everything about him is common. How does he refer to himself time and time and time again? A son of man, right? In, in no way, he allows his, he allows his divinity to, to, be, to, to peek out from the veil from time to time, but he's never intent on fully revealing his divinity really bef before the resurrection. And it won't even be 
fully understand as part of the Trinity until after Pentecost. So the name Eve and the name Adam have a um, have you know beautiful significance. Um, she's referred to obviously as you know as the the original female. She's referred to as female twice in Genesis one, as a woman in a variety of different grammatical forms. Twice in chapter 2, eight times in chapter 8. Um, and even when we consider you know, the origin of that description, woman, because she was taken out of man, she's the one who's, who, according to the narrative, was created out of the living material, the corporeal uh, um, body of uh, of a of a living being with a created spiritual soul. She was created out of out of man. Man, Adam was created out of the dust of the earth. Both accounts of creation, one and two, follow generally, and one even more more specifically, this trajectory of 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 more and more glorious things being described as the, as the chronology goes later and later, right? And in both Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, what's the last thing to be created? Very last thing described as being created, but woman, right? At the end of chapter 2, uh, and then a few times in chapter 3, um, she, they are described as um, man and wife. And this description is, is significant, especially because of how it speaks of this covenant between these two, two becoming one flesh, which then becomes the image for any covenant with God where these two living beings heretofore uh, not needing to be more closely united for the sake of survival, but freely joining themselves are so united that they are as one body. And to try to divide them and live afterwards is, is akin to cutting an animal in half and expecting both halves to live. Right? That's the image, it's the very graphic image we see later on in the Old Testament. And, and how covenants are established, right? Even the verb for establishing a covenant means to cut a covenant because it doesn't begin with the words describing the covenant. The covenant begins with the actual sacrifice and the cutting of the animals in two, showing what would happen if these two beings try to separate from the covenant. When, when we look at Pope Benedict's first, we will see in paragraphs 9, 10, and 11 
beautiful meditation on these accounts of creation and what they reveal. Paragraphs 9 and 10 are well worth reading, but I'm not going to read them to you. I will read for you, however, paragraph 11. The first novelty of biblical faith consists, as we have seen, in his image of God. The second, essentially connected to this, is found in the image of man. The biblical account of creation speaks of the solitude of Adam, the first man and God's decision to give him a helper. Of all other creatures, not one is capable of being the helper the man needs, even though he is assigned a name to all the wild beasts and birds, and thus made them fully a part of his life. So God forms woman from the rib of man. Now Adam finds the helper that he needed. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Here one might detect hints of ideas that are also found, for example, in the myth mentioned by Plato, according to which man was originally spherical because he was complete in himself and self-sufficient. But as a punishment for pride, he was split in two by Zeus so that now he longs for his other half, striving with all his being to possess it and thus regain his integrity. While the biblical narrative does not speak of punishment, the idea is certainly present that man is somehow incomplete driven by nature to seek in another the part that can make him whole. The idea that only in communion with the opposite sex can he become complete. The biblical account thus concludes with a prophecy about Adam. Therefore, man leaves his father and his mother and cleaves to his wife, and they become one flesh. Remember how it was mentioned last night that this account of creation describing how man is incomplete as a lonely male, but Eve is created so that man, male and female, are created for companionship. Con consider that. Uh, consider, what, as we understand the original innocence of Adam and Eve, Adam is without sin. He is innocent. But he's radically incomplete. So incomplete that Eve needs to be made. Man, male and female were not meant to be isolated. We were made for companionship. And yet, on another level, man, male, and female in companionship with each other, in original innocence, are still incomplete. Because we're made for far greater. We were made, ultimately, for the indwelling of the Holy Trinity, for the beatific vision, as befits sons and daughters of God who have been transformed by the grace of God. That's what we're made for. Now we know that, right? So man, male and female, husband and wife, even in original innocence, you can say perfect, not in the sense of totally complete, but completely innocent, perfect integrity of body and soul, incomplete. Now, if they had enough humility to obey God, they would have been complete enough. Otherwise, original sin is a, a trap set by the Lord. But their obedience to God would have resulted, would have needed to have resulted in their being happy. 
not complete, still yearning for something, but happy. So there is a, there is a weakness there, an incompleteness, that the devil is able to use for our demise. We, and, and whether it's an intuition or, or even a thought that we were, we were made for more than this. There's, there's got to be something more. And we've been, we've been allowed to have access to everything, but we've been forbidden from, from, you know, from having of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Maybe that's the thing we're lacking. So, but what we lack is that the life of union with God that is made possible only by the incarnation and the Paschal mystery. And so this story is about um, the happiness of man, male and female on earth, and the happiness of, of man in heaven and eternity with God. This original innocence isn't enough. There's got to be something more. If we're humble, if we're obedient, we can enter into that with a minimum of suffering. But even if we're not humble and even if we're not obedient, um, God really wants this to happen. And so it'll happen with suffering and pain and heartache, but it can still happen. The image that we used this morning about the original innocence of Adam and Eve, and yet they're still incomplete, uh, it seemed necessary, it does seem necessary because we could, we could too easily think of Adam and Eve as being clean, but um, um, incapable of living happily. Um, but I don't think we should think that. I think we should have a greater regard, a greater respect for their original innocence and, and their capacities as human beings created in the image and likeness of God without original sin, even if they don't have sanctifying grace. So imagine, um, like yesterday or the, no, two days ago, I saw the, the Maserati that belongs to the Italian ambassador on Route 66, driving west during rush hour. It's fairly slow traffic. So uh, I was able to take a page out of my dad's playbook. Dad was a newspaper man, and even in the 60s, 70s, he had strapped with rubber bands to his sun visor a list, a typed out list, of all the diplomatic tag codes. So that when a stupid driver did a stupid maneuver, he knew which embassy to send an angry letter to. Uh, you, can, you can download all those diplomatic tag codes on, you can get them on Wikipedia easily. Some are specific to New York uh, for the UN, some are specific to here. There's a separate code for consulate uh, officials as opposed to diplomatic officials at the embassy. But, so if you around here, if you see a diplomatic tag and it starts with a D, you know, it's an embassy. And then the next two letters identify the country. So this is DTR0001. The, the 001 vehicle is the ambassador's vehicle. Now, 
there was no one in the back seat, and the gentleman in the front seat might have been the ambassador. Uh, might not have been. You would usually expect an ambassador to be, to be driven as opposed to be driving. But um, nevertheless, so imagine Adam and Eve as the most amazing Maserati ever. Right, perfect. Beautiful. Couldn't be better in its own natural capacities. Hidden under the hood, however, are um, other components that have yet to be activated. As it turns out, this Maserati can also be a helicopter, an airplane, a space shuttle, a ship, and a submarine, a time machine, a donut maker, and a bacon fryer. As a car, it's perfect, right? And its natural capacity is perfect. But it has all these other, we'll call them supernatural, because bacon definitely pertains to the supernatural, capacities that wouldn't ever make us think that what it was originally was bad. But we realize now, after the fact, oh, it's incomplete. It was made for something impossibly glorious that would never have been imagined at first. As Christians, we forget that. We forget what it, what it really means to, to enter into a relationship with God as intimately as we do. Not just notionally, not just visually, even super substantially and physically. It might, it might be good for everybody to see what a priest sees on occasion, which is a picture of us at church. It can remind us because when we're at church, we see it from within our eye sockets, right? And so we don't really see ourselves. Or we're totally wrapped up in ourselves, either way, one or the other. But when you see a picture of you at church, when you see a picture of you at the altar receiving Holy Communion, when you see a picture of you and there's a monstrance on the altar, or you see a picture of you and there's our Lord in the tabernacle, you realize, oh my goodness, that's God. And I'm in the same picture. Right? We so easily walk into church and we're overwhelmed with our own sins. Or we're, we're caught up in our concerns. Or we're thankful to God. But in a, in a, in a, in a sense it's beautiful because it's like a, a child just walking into, you know, mom or dad's room. And, and just immediately just starting to talk. Not even remembering what's going on being largely oblivious to what's happening. And imagine, you know, you're walking into uh, the bedroom of a king, and it's your dad. And you just, you just walk in in your pajamas, and you're just talking. Not all your talking makes sense, even. So, the, 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 the nobility of, of, of this ultimate glory of man that's made possible, possible by the incarnation and the Paschal Mysteries. Um, something that Adam and Eve couldn't have imagined. They had a natural happiness. Natural happiness. I mean, Adam was certainly very happy to be Eve, right? He was overjoyed when Eve was created. Their happiness with God is real. 
But it's a natural happiness. So, um, so both, both of these things are going on. The incompleteness of male without female. The incompleteness of man, male and female, without God. And it's not as though God is absent. But, but because you are made for something glorious, you, will, you, you won't be satisfied until it's fulfilled, right? St. Augustine, you know? So the yearnings of the human heart are, are what Pope Benedict XVI has in mind here. So the last paragraph, or the last section of paragraph 11. Two aspects of this are important. First, eros is somehow noted, somehow rooted in man's very nature. Adam is a seeker who abandons his father and mother in order to find woman. Only together do the two represent complete humanity and become one flesh. The second aspect is equally important. From the standpoint of creation, Eros directs man towards marriage to a bond which is unique and definitive. Thus and only thus does it fulfill its deepest purpose. Corresponding to the image of a monotheistic God is monogamous marriage. Marriage based on exclusive and definitive love becomes the icon of the relationship between God and his people and vice versa. God's way of loving becomes the measure of human love. This close connection between eros and marriage in the Bible has practically no equivalent in extra-biblical literature. God very deliberately uses that image of bride and bridegroom to describe his relationship with the church in the Old Testament and the New Testament. In that sense, marriage, um, marriage is more appropriately a description of this relationship um, than even uh, marriage and children are related to uh, an understanding of the Trinity. That's related as corollary, but what's very specific and deliberate by God is his revealing of his love for us, like the perfect husband who lays down his life for his bride, who dies for her, who gives up his entire life, who subjects himself to her. On a level of uh, theology and even other, other methodologies, it's good to remember that we'll, we, we, we arrive at knowledge most surely when we have the object in our mind first and foremost. What I mean by that is when you're studying an object, you should probably study it from, from the beginning um, as opposed to all of the preambles. Um, you have a yearning and understanding, a curiosity about it, but you're not studying you and your relationship with the object. You're studying the object. Um, whether it be, you know, I won't understand soccer if I'm studying how I play soccer. I'll understand soccer if I study, you know, the game itself. So too with God. It's, it's good when, when we're dealing with things pertaining to God. The starting point is God. Not my thoughts about God or my yearning for God or my experience of God even. But it's actually God. God is the one who reveals himself to us. We can't actually find God in a supernatural way. We can know by the power of natural reason that God exists, that he made the universe um, that there's order, um, 
of all of that we can know by natural reason, but that doesn't result in a relationship with God. That just results in a knowledge that God exists. God reveals himself to us so that we can know him. And so if I want to know God, I have to start with God. I start with God's revelation. What's, what's then quite beautiful, I think, is how even though these first three chapters, first 11 chapters of Genesis, even the first three in particular, they aren't overtly about God. They're about what God is doing for us, what God is, how God is interacting with us. But in reality, since ultimately we aren't happy without God, as much as Genesis is talking about us, God, Genesis is primarily revealing God to us. But not by just talking about God's properties, characteristics, perfections, and activities, but by, but by talking about the ones, God, the ones that God loves, namely us. So the story is about man, male and female, created, and their actions, their decisions, and the consequences of those decisions. But really, it's about God.